Before we get into this episode, I just wanted to mention our sponsor, Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast, and let me explain, because it's free. And there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. It's so easy, even a chud can do it. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. You're listening to the Rude Horror Podcast with your host, Marcus Rude. Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Rude Horror Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Rude, and today I have a, a returning special guest with us, Mr. Wyatt Weed. Hey, Marcus. Hey, what's up, man? Hey, not too much. Just uh, chilling in St. Louis during the uh, during the uh, coronavirus shutdown, man. <laughs> I know this is it's kind of a big thing right now. Yeah, it's uh, it's getting a little bit like one of the horror movies we like to talk about. You well, know, getting getting a little weird. Right, right. Well, uh, not to steer off of a, a subject, but uh, Charles Band is uh, hopping on the the pandemic wagon and making Corona zombies. I don't oh, know if you've seen that. No, I haven't. That's that's just about as bad as like making coronavirus T-shirts and trying to sell them on the street corner, man. That's just... <laughs> But, you know, that's kind of classic Charles Band, isn't it? That's kind of classic uh, exploitation for him, I think. So Right. You know, anything to just kind of jump on a, a subject that will get people talking. Yeah. But, you know, I, I still give Charlie Band more credit than, say, The Asylum. You know, The Asylum has made some pretty blatant, horrible uh, exploitation cash in. So I, I, I still put Charlie Band, you know, a couple notches above The Asylum. So, oh, so there's oh, that. Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure i i still watch the full moon films yeah uh, <laughs> even and I'm though excited for um there's this film um uh the primevals and the primevals the primevals is a film that charlie band started working on um with david allen back in the 90s and they shot the live action for this film and they started doing the special effects and it's kind of a throwback stop motion animated action adventure film and then David Allen passed away and the film just kind of sat in limbo. And over the last few years, they've been having Kickstarters and fundraisers to get the money together to finish the film. And apparently one of uh, David Allen's buddies, I think his name is Charles Lippincott or Charles Endicott. He is finishing the film. So at some point in time in the future here, Full Moon is going to release this you know, 30 years in the making, um, David Allen stop motion epic, which I, you know, I, I, I'm tempering my expectations. I don't think it'll be that great a film, but I'm really looking forward to it because this thing has been in, in the works forever and they've mm -hmm. tried to save this film several times and it's not happened. So probably sometime in the next year or so, this film is finally going to get released. And Again, I got to give Charlie credit because, you know, what you know of him and what you see of him, you can't imagine that he would be loyal and and dedicated enough to pull this old film out and restore it. But he's going to he's going to finish this film and release it. So I'm I, I think that's very cool. Very cool. Well, 
Oh, for sure. It's yeah, it's very intriguing. Um, you know, it's it's definitely a lot different than uh, his newer stuff, where it seems like they're maybe pumping out a film in you know a full film made in like two weeks. Because <laughs> I I think uh, you know back to the Corona Zombies. I think they said they're going to be releasing it next month sometime. So this is like. <laughs> They might have shot it in like five days, or you know, it just seems like, man, you know, that's, that's pretty that's quick. I used to work on some low budget stuff in Hollywood, and and I'm still talking back in like the 35 millimeter days when they would release these things directly to VHS, and some of those maybe a two hundred thousand dollar budget and maybe like ten days of filming. And let me tell you, ten days of filming for a feature film is un believably fast and it's really not it's not sensible and it doesn't really work and it really doesn't yield very good results but so if you tell me someone is shooting a film faster than 10 days i can tell you right now 10 days isn't enough so if you're shooting it faster than that i guess if it's maybe one person looking in a mirror talking or if it's like two guys sitting at a table maybe but wow anything faster than 10 days is just it's insanity it's absolute insanity so but but that but you know right. that's, that's me. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, I I just think that is way too fast yeah. to be releasing something like that. But you know, he'll probably he'll probably find an audience for it. He probably will. There'll probably be a bunch of guys sitting around at night having a beer, you know, watching Corona Zombies. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, hey, drinking I'm, some Coronas. I'm still amazed. How many Sharknado films did we get? Like six, seven? I don't remember. Yeah. I don't I think yeah. it's about six, at least six. So if we can get six Sharknado films, I guess I guess we're up for at least one Corona Zombie movie. I think, I think that'll be okay. That'll be all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, man. Um, well, uh, since we're on like the full moon and uh, not really far off from like Empire Pictures, um, Stuart Gordon, one of the masters of horror, that. Uh, we lost a few days ago. Yeah. Um, that was kind of a, a surprise to me, you know, finding out that he had passed. It just, you know, I didn't really think that he was going through, you know, if, you know, if it, was, if it was like natural causes or, you know, I'm sure nothing's been really released yet. But. Uh, yeah. I'm, um, I, I, I saw a listing somewhere that just said died of multiple organ failure which i don't know you don't just i mean if you're like 100 years old you die of multiple organ failure but he was only 72 and yeah you weren't hearing stories of like he was fighting cancer or he had a disease or there was an issue yeah so just to announce out of the blue just you know i guess they were keeping his personal issues under wraps and they weren't talking about whatever was wrong with him and then then just boom just just dead um, yeah. Oh my it, gosh. It was a shock. Um, and it's at moments like that, you know, you don't, you're not really thinking about someone and, you know, you maybe their films are on your shelf or you've got a DVD or something or a movie poster. So you think about their work and then, you know, suddenly you see on Facebook, Stuart Gordon dead at 72. And all of a sudden, yeah, it's a huge blow because, you know, if you'd gone down a list of filmmakers and, and called out some of these filmmakers, I don't know. 
how much his name would have struck me. But then hearing that he passed away, I was like, wow, there was some, he, he did do some, some really, uh, you know, it's, it's tough to say important because you, you talk about a film like Casablanca, or you talk about a film like Citizen Kane and you think, okay, that's an important and influential film. So it's, when you say something like Stuart Gordon being an important horror filmmaker, you know, people might not really understand the weight of that or or think that that's a real thing. But um, I, I do think that there was an influence there and he was part of, you know, a movement there in the 80s. And there's a lot of horror going on in the 80s. But Stuart Gordon was just kind of going down a pathway that was very different and very original and um he really left an impression on a lot of people of a certain age and you're younger than i am and clearly mm -hmm. an impression on you and yet you know he hit my generation too he hit, i'm a baby boomer and all my boomer friends who are fans of films they remember Stuart gordon they remember his films they remember going to the theaters and being hit being hit like getting hit in the face by his movies they were <laughs> they were really mm -hmm. something they were really something yeah, um, you know, and uh, it really shows a lot of, uh, you know, you know, big credits to the people he worked around as well, because, um, you know, he with, uh, you know, several of his movies, he's kind of worked with some, you know, the same people. So and, and it shows uh, just, you know, how how uh, powerful his films could get, <clears throat> you know, like. uh you know, I'll say, you know, Reanimator is probably, will always probably be his most popular horror film ever. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's and, probably safe to say that, that that one would be the most, you know, that one stands out above the rest. I would agree. I would agree. Um, and it, it, it really, the, the ability he had, you know, there's that line. There's that line that you can walk and not a lot of filmmakers can do it. Um, I think Stuart Gordon can do it. I think Sam Raimi can do it. Um, Peter Jackson probably can do it. But he just walked this line between horror and comedy and drama. And you bought it. You bought it. Because I've never seen anything like Reanimator since. Just this. I mean, it was it was kind of earnest and it was kind of sincere. And then it got kind of dark and dramatic and then it would go scary and then it would go unbelievably gruesome. So gruesome, you couldn't believe what you were seeing. And then it'd get darkly funny and have you laughing. So you would jump out of your chair, then you would get grossed out and then you'd start giggling within minutes of each other. And it worked. I mean, I've seen films that have a weird balance to them and I laugh at them for the wrong reasons or I'm grossed out by them for the wrong reasons. And it's because they're they're bad movies or they they don't strike a balance. Reanimator strikes this perfect walk the line balance between all these things. And it's just um, I don't know if I'm ready to call it genius, but again, I don't know any filmmaker of that time who could really just kind of tiptoe between all those things and come up with a winner and have it be so damned entertaining. Maybe, maybe Sam Raimi's um, Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn. Maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and Evil Dead, Dawn, Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn is almost in a different category by itself. It's almost a different thing. But yeah, Reanimator's just so successful. It like invented its own genre. It invented this, it, its own sort of 
splatter gore comedy genre. It's just, uh, yeah, I've, I've, I've right. yet to see anything like it. Right. Yeah. It, it definitely was a, you know, a movie that uh, could just stand on, on its own without even spawning the sequels. Like if you right. just watch reanimator, that's the perfect movie to watch. Yes. Um, uh, uh, you know, Bride of Reanimator is pretty good. It, you know, I, yeah, it's it's better than I expected, and uh, I had such high hopes for Bride of Reanimator, and then, and and I have this weird sort of off and on relationship, working relationship with Brian Usna, and Brian Usna uh, worked with Stuart Gordon a lot. He was Stuart Gordon's producer, and then. Brian Usna started directing his own stuff. And Brian very definitely has his own sensibility and his own style. And if you know Brian's other stuff, like if you know, say, um, Return of the Living Dead 3 and Society, then, you know, Bride of Reanimator makes perfect sense. Like Bride of Reanimator is a Brian Usna film. And if you're looking at Brian Usna films and you like Brian Usna films, cool. But I don't. But Bride of Reanimator feels very different uh, as a follow-up to to Reanimator. It's not it's not one of those horrible inferior sequels, but it's it's a different kind of film. It's like Brian wanted to do something different and started out with a different sensibility and was trying to pay tribute to different things that it felt to me were very different than what than what Stuart Gordon did. Um, so you know, respect if you really enjoy Bride of Re- Reanimator. I just feel like. You know, there's a different mold there. Like Reanimator was one thing, and it was beautiful all unto itself. And then Bride of Reanimator came along, and it was, it was, it was just something a little different. You could tell. Um, it's like those those later Alien movies where you get Alien, Aliens, and then you get Alien Three, and you go, "What? Wait, what?" And then you get <laughs> Alien Resurrection, and you go, "What? What? Hang on, what?" So yeah, you got Reanimator, and then you got Bride of Reanimator, and you kind of went, "Wait, what?" Huh? What? It's not <laughs> a bad then, film, though. Like I said, I did enjoy it when it came out. I did enjoy it. Yeah, and then you know, then you get to Beyond Reanimator. Then you're like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> and it just keeps going. <laughs> uh, I think that's going to be our phrase for the night. Like, what? 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 <laughs> you went there? What? <laughs> but I think um, Reanimator. I think Reanimator felt like it. I felt like there was a series of films and I'm having a hard time like putting my finger on one of them right now, but I kind of feel like after reanimator, there were other films that tried to go there. And I don't, it's like, I I know there were other films that followed that were like, Oh, we're going to be gory and funny and weird all at the same time. But I don't remember any of them. Like none of them stick the way that animator did. Well, uh, you know, like using his films, they kind of, uh, you like ticks, like you know, ticks yeah. is a creature feature. Yeah. But some some of the uh, the parts where, like the ticks are on the people and stuff, like you know, m- me like my opinion, like I kind of laughed a couple of times. Just you know how ridiculous it looked. Yeah. Ticks. But, uh, movie, you mentioned ticks. Ticks was a movie that I actually bid on to work on. Um, there were some miniatures and some special effects and stuff. Um, and that's the one where they, they kind of set everything on fire at the end, right? Where at the end, uh, like the forest is on fire and everything right. up. I, I bid on doing like miniatures and forest fires and 
miniature forest sets and things like that. And uh, my bid, just to kind of give you an idea of how these films function sometimes, um, my bid was not unreasonable. I think I bid $10,000 uh, to to build some miniature forests and some miniature cabins and things and and be able to redress them and burn them multiple times. And I remember the reaction, um, not Brian Usna, but the reaction of some of the people on the crew was just like, oh, my God, $10,000, $10,000. And they, you know, they just kind of laughed it off and went in a different direction. And $10,000, I don't know how, if that sounds like a lot of money, but $10,000 to build a bunch of miniature sets and burn them down is not a lot of money. And the ticks people basically laughed at me and went in a different direction. So, you know, that's, that's my connection with ticks, but I remember enjoying ticks. I thought ticks was a lot of fun and then ticks are creepy asshole creatures. So they deserve their own movie. They they really do. Um, Yes. (laughs) And then maybe, maybe in 1986, there was house, the Steve Miner film with William Cat in it, but House mm-hmm. House never got quite as gory or quite as you know off the wall. Like House was funny, but it mm-hmm. was not quite as just Gonzo crazy off the wall as uh, Reanimator was. I don't think anything was as off the wall <laughs> as Reanimator was. So, and I know people like my wife, for example. My wife's not she's not going to go and seek out the obscure horror stuff like she is not going to sit through um, Dead Alive, Peter Jackson's film. That's not for her. She's not going to go seek out Peter Jackson's um, Meet the Feebles. That is beyond her. There are there are Italian horror films with, you know, all kinds of grossness happening. She's not going to be Argento. Exactly. But having said all that, she loves reanimator like reanimator crosses this line over into popular cinema like my mother who's 80 something years old would sit down and laugh her ass off and watch reanimator reanimator crosses a line where there's enough of these other elements in it that like it crosses over the genres and some people i know who just have no interest in horror whatsoever at all find reanimator incredibly entertaining and that that says a lot about the film too that it's sort of crossed over this this line with people well and it kind of gives you a feel of like a universal monster movie in a way oh that's a like, good point yeah yeah that's you know a like it point. you know like it, it's got the the formula for like a universal monster film like you know like dr frankenstein sure dr herbert west is almost like dr frankenstein but just you know, and going then I, a different route instead yeah. of, you know. You you bring that point up, which is then I think where Brian Usna went with Bride of Reanimator. I mean, he literally did like a universal monster film sequel in the form of a reanimator film. He did literally Bride of Frankenstein. He just did it as Bride of Reanimator. So he very I maybe he took it too literally, maybe. Maybe he he kind of took that idea that you just touched on and and you know, rather than just sort of hinting at it, he just sort of jumped on top of it quite literally. But, um, but yeah, no, that's an excellent observation. And, and Herbert West, I mean, if we could have, we could have seen a whole, I, I could see a brand new Netflix series that is just all the adventures of Herbert West. I, I think that would be just a fantastic thing, a wonderful, wonderful thing to get into. Oh, for sure. Well, uh, H.P. Lovecraft is, you know, his stories are sort of making a comeback. Yeah. Um, with the uh, I haven't seen it yet, but the 
Color Out of Space movie with Nicolas Cage. I I have not seen it either. Um, I've heard some good things about it from fans who've seen it, friends of mine. Um, it had a couple of, I, I think it spent about a week or two in a theater here in St. Louis, um, a, a limited screening, which that was excellent. And it's it was made by Richard Stanley. And Richard Stanley, who's had this crazy career where he started hot out the gate and he did um, this science fiction film it was back in the late 80s, early 90s called Hardware. Mm-hmm. And he did hardware, and then I think he did this uh, Australian or New Zealand film called Dust Devil. And the guy was really on the road. And then he worked on the first version of Island of Dr. Moreau with uh, the the remake in the '90s with um, mm. Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer. And he got removed from that project. He got fired. He was fed up with filmmaking. He was done. There's <laughs> even. There's even a documentary about Richard Stanley and all the stuff he went through. And years later, he he finally did this color out of space film. So it's really he he just had such an interesting vision and such an interesting way of doing things. So to see him come back after all these years and do a movie, I need to seek out and find color out of space because um, it's it, it got done one time before back in the 60s as a movie called uh, Die Monster Die, which oh, okay. which was a very kind of loose, weird adaptation of it. And I and I want to say maybe there's been other TV and odd adaptations of it. But it sounds to me like this new Nicolas Cage version is is probably the more accurate um, a portrayal of, of the story. Um you know, and it's got all those typical, uh, you know, those, those classic Lovecraft elements of just weirdness and unexplained strangeness and sort of body horror and uh, strange transformations and weird, unexplainable things happening. It's, it's so hard to put your finger on what Lovecraft exactly was. I love Lovecraft. I, I, I've, there are projects of there's stories of his I would love to turn into films, but I, I still at times just, I, you know, someone once a critic once said that he wrote about the liveliest awfulness and the liveliest awfulness is like the best ex- explanation I've ever heard of Lovecraft. It's like he'll go into great depths to describe some horrible, nasty thing that he still doesn't describe completely and he still doesn't put in 3d terms and, you know, and it, but it's horrifying and it's terrible and it makes your skin crawl. And, you know, it's mm-hmm. in HP Lovecraft's world, there's dark and weird things lurking under the surface everywhere and no one is safe and nothing is safe. And yeah, there's, it's just, it's a great world. It's really a wonderful world to get into. Right. Yeah. I, uh, I've read a lot of Lovecraft stuff and it's, you know, he he definitely wrote things for the, his time you know yes. some of his wordage or you know yes. his wording in his stories are you know not really taken wouldn't be really taken well in today's society but the the idea of of his stories are just amazing and i'm thinking about I'm thinking about Lovecraft now in relation to some modern writers, and I'm sort of reconsidering some of what Lovecraft has done. For example, um, Max Brooks, who wrote World War Z, the oral history of the zombie war. I don't know if I'm getting that title exactly right, but Max Brooks wrote 
World War Z. And Max Brooks writes a lot about zombies. <clears throat> and apparently a lot of Max's inspiration has to do with illness and fear and fear of fear of certain diseases and fear of contagion. And, you know, he's basically put all that into a form and the form is zombies. Like, so when Max Brooks is writing about zombies, he's writing about these fears of contagion and these fears of medicine and these fears of illness. And he's putting a face on them and, and he's doing it as zombies. And I look back and think about HP Lovecraft and the time he lived in, like predominantly living and writing in the twenties and thirties, it was a very different world. You know, we had technology, but we didn't have high technology. We, our medicine wasn't as advanced. Um, society wasn't as strong on because the guy never made a lot of money. He never lived well. I think he he died at a relatively young age. He wasn't healthy. So it, his world was probably very much about survival and making the rent and what am I going to do? And gosh, I'm living in this horrible place. And he, I would imagine some of what was going on in his life, I, not to say that he was a down or damaged guy, but I have a feeling that a lot of his own personal struggles and his relationships and issues went into his work and it manifested itself in this really just weird, bizarre way. So like if Max Brooks's worldview is that illness is zombies, I think, I think Lovecraft's worldview was like, you know, everything is horrible and everything, you know, disaster lurks beneath the surface. And, you know, if you can't find friends and love and support, then horrible things are going to happen to you. And it's just, that's just a theory I have. I, I don't mm -hmm. know that for sure, but it seems like looking back now, you know, I think he was a generally upbeat guy, but he was an upbeat guy with some really dark things swimming around in his head. Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting theory, but yeah. Um, uh... And, you know, obviously, Stuart Gordon was a big fan of H.P. Lovecraft. Yes. Yes. And, uh, you know, I don't, was it like, do you think it was like his call to make all those H.P. Lovecraft movies like <laughs> within like a 10 year period? It seemed like, you know, he just kind of pumped out like, what was it, like four or five of them? Yeah, it. The tough thing about Lovecraft, in my opinion, and, and I've seen some of this reflected in Hollywood, too, is for the longest time, Lovecraft, uh, Lovecraft was a weird guy in that he would write these stories and he would sell them and he'd make some money and then he'd move on. And he wasn't real technical or legal minded. So a lot of his stuff never got copyrighted. So Lovecraft would do, you know, he'd write a story and he'd sell it to Amazing Stories or some horror anthology and he'd, mm -hmm. he'd get a couple hundred bucks for it and he'd be thrilled. Well, but he, a lot of his stuff he never copyrighted. So then later on, as he was nearing the end of his life, he was associating with a guy named August Derleth. And August Derleth, after H.P. Lovecraft died, took a bunch of Lovecraft's work and copyrighted it, like officially copyrighted it. Now, some of it got copyrighted, some of it, the book that it was published in or the magazine that it was published in got copyrighted. So there's a lot of debate and a lot of argument over the copyrights on a lot of Lovecraft stuff. Some people insist that a lot of his work is in the public domain. Other people say, no, it's not. Um, and I don't have a lot of respect for the Durleth family overall, because then when August Durleth died, his daughter, April, took over the the Arkham House publishing and 
she was very protective of the Lovecraft stuff because that was, you know, to put it bluntly, it was the meal ticket. You know, mm-hmm. this family had basically inherited Lovecraft's copyrights. So to this day, there is debate over um, various stories. So I think part of what happened was there in the 80s, the stuff that was clearly available and the stuff that could clearly they could clearly get permission for, I think they jumped on it. I think every filmmaker who likes Lovecraft, like the holy grail is to do maybe Call of Cthulhu or At the Mountains of Madness. Mm-hmm. But those two in particular, especially At the Mountains of Madness, there are counterclaims that At the Mountains of Madness is in the public domain and counterclaims that no, it's gotten copyrighted. And now with the current copyright changes, they're extending copyrights, they're changing dates, they're doing all these extensions. I have spoken to lawyers about At the Mountains of Madness because At the Mountains of Madness is the one that I love so much and would love to make a film out of. At the Mountains of Madness, I I can't get a lawyer to give me a straight answer as to whether or not that thing is in the public domain. So, So I think part of what happened with Stuart Gordon is he jumped on the stuff that was available or could be gotten the but I think a lot of filmmakers and this includes your James Cameron's and your your Guillermo del Toro's and other people would love to tackle the bigger more popular stories but I think there's there's copyright issues but also the expense like some of the stuff that Stuart Gordon picked like reanimator and from beyond and um dagon and stuff like that castle freak castle freak (laughs) cheaper easier smaller um the problem then becomes with like call of cthulhu that's world spanning and it involves men on a sailing ship and going out into the middle of the ocean and encountering you know great cthulhu itself and at the mountains of madness involves you know aircraft flying to the antarctic and taking a ship sailing and you know, going into this huge ancient city and encountering the giant Sagoths and a huge sort of special effects type extravaganza. So part of it, I think, was what he could get his hands on and and what they could sell. And then part of it was budget. Like, I'm sure, you know, if he could have convinced someone to give him 30 million in the 1980s to do, you know, At the Mountains of Madness, I bet you he would have done it. But Mm -hmm. if he could only get three, four, five million dollars to do something, then it was going to be reanimator from beyond, etc. And back then we were still so much in that era of, you know, I talked earlier about $200,000 films being shot in 10 days. I worked on a lot of films back in the 80s and 90s. And there was a formula. And you know, there's so much of these crappy, weird, bizarre movies that ended up on VHS in the in the 80s and the early 90s. But the formula was if you could make a film for, say, two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand dollars and you could get it on VHS. That was back when there were like thirty thousand VHS stores in the United States and VHS were expensive. Like you sold a rental copy and you paid a premium price for it. And then you could rent the hell out of it and make as much money as possible. So an initial VHS copy, like you order reanimator from my company and I send you a VHS for reanimator. I'm going to charge you like $70 for that VHS copy of reanimator. Mm. So you, you paid a premium, but then you had reanimator on VHS in your store for as long as the tape lasted and you're renting it $2 a pop and you're renting it 
every night for the next couple of years because it's reanimator, it was a hugely profitable thing. So there were companies churning out $200,000 horrible movies, getting them on VHS, and they could expect to make like $800,000 to a million dollars per film on their $200,000 investment. That's the kind of economics that we were talking about back then. And I hate to get too Hollywood about it. So you look at some of the stuff that Stuart Gordon and Charlie Band and, and Brian Usna worked on back then, there was a formula. And it was like a, a can't miss formula. Like if you could put a couple of names together, get a reasonably exploitative story, and then get it out there on VHS with a couple of selling points and a cool poster, boom. You you were making cash. You were just printing money. And there were companies that were not good at it, but there were companies that were great at it. And they put out some awesome films. So with, you know, mom and pops dying and VHS kind of falling by the wayside and then DVD came in and the profit margin on DVD, DVDs were so much less expensive to make that you couldn't make a 99 cent DVD produced in Mexico or China and then try to sell it to a DVD rental house for for $70 wasn't going to happen. So suddenly the, the economics and the finance changed because everybody could produce this stuff so much cheaper. And then the internet hit and streaming hit and, and like the politics changed completely. So suddenly, you know, you got guys like Yuzna and Charlie Band and Stuart Gordon, where are they going to make their low budget films and release them? So you know, where you used to have Vestron and Trimark and Orion and all these companies making these these low budget features, you don't have them anymore. And that was where guys like me got our start. So where do filmmakers get their start now? It's like back in Hollywood, back in the day, you went to Hollywood, you got into the low budget arena. And, and you know, in a couple of years time, you could do you could be a PA, then you could move up to being like an assistant or work on set or start building things. Or if you like the makeup department, you could move into the makeup department. If you wanted to act, you could start getting bit parts. I mean, the low budget arena was where you began and it was your film school and it trained you and it trained you well. And then you moved up and did bigger and better things. We don't really have that now. Now we have independent digital cinema. And, you know, and some of the digital cinema scene is really cool. We have a thriving digital filmmaking community here in St. Louis, but it's very different because it's all sort of amateur filmmaking. Even the people who are doing it well and doing it professionally, they're basically kind of doing it at home on their own. So it's not the same training ground as it was then. So I'm sorry, that was just a very long, twisted answer. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think Stuart, Stuart Gordon and Yuzna and those guys, I think they made what was accessible and what they could affordably make. And I, I think they would have gone higher and, and farther if they could have. But one thing I will tell you about Brian Yuzna from personal experience is he was frugal. He was smart, but I mean, he wasn't going to lose his shirt. Like if the budget was this and you had this much time, then that's how much money you got. And that's how much time you got. And he didn't tolerate. You couldn't be a creative uh, knucklehead around Brian Usna. If you got all artsy and fancy and you decided you wanted to step outside the box and take more time and take more money, Brian would come down on you like a hammer and say, no, you have this much time and you have this much money and you better figure out how to finish it. And guys like Stuart Gordon, I think, rose to the challenge and just went, OK, cool. I got I got this much time and this much money and, and I better be creative and I better do it right. So 
you know, and that as bad as that kind of pressure sounds, it makes you a good craftsman. I mean, back in the days, you know, television and low budget films, it's like it's a serious thing. You have a limited amount of time and resources and you better know what the heck you're doing. So I think someone like Stuart Gordon went in with a plan. He knew what he was doing. He knew what he wanted. Bam, he did it, went home. So I, th I think Stuart Gordon and, and Brian Usner were able to, they were able to combine business and entertainment very well. There's a lot of people that can't do it. There's a lot of big Hollywood studios that can't do it. But I think those guys knew how to tread the line between being cost effective and entertaining the hell out of you at the same time. So, oh, and again, without question. I'm sorry. Well, I said, oh, without question. Yeah. Yeah. Again, sorry, that was a very long and twisted answer to a simple question. <laughs> no, no, I, I, you know, you do have some, uh, ugh, you do have some incredible stories. So I, you know, I, I'm just taking it all in, man. I remember a time, I'm not going to say the film and I'm not going to say the director because I don't want to get anybody in too much trouble. But I remember a time on a film where Brian Usna was producing and there was this massive like fight action scene at the end of the film. And the director, the director was very good, and he made some really neat stuff. But he also kind of, he was kind of a creative diva at times. And there were times when, you know, he wanted to do things his way, and he wanted to do what he wanted to do. And I remember Brian just basically coming to set at one point and saying, you got to get out of this scene. You got today and tomorrow. You got to get out of this scene in 40 shots. And the director kind of threw a minor hissy fit and said, you know, you can't dictate terms to me like that. And Brian said, I can dictate anything I want to you. And he basically put the kibosh on this guy and he said, you will get out of this in 40 shots. You can do 20 shots today. You can do 20 shots tomorrow. And you better figure out what your 40 shots are going to be and get you out of this because we're wow. done. And you know what's funny? The guy did it. The guy sat down and he looked at his script and he looked at his storyboards and he quit screwing around and he quit fiddling around with all this crazy, distracting stuff. And it, it forced him to make decisions. John Carpenter said, directing is deciding. And I'm a big fan of that attitude. Directing is deciding. And Brian Usna basically came in and told this guy, make up your damn mind and shoot your film. And this guy sat down, looked at his storyboards and went, okay, this is what I need. And that's, that's what a lot of filmmaking is. Even the classic movies, you look at them and they're incredibly efficient and they're to the point and they're very, they tell you the story as quickly and interestingly and visually as possible and then they get out. And, and so that's kind of what it forced this guy to do. It kind of forced him to go, okay, what do I need? And he threw out all the extra stuff and he got rid of the crap and all the experimenting and he went to the heart of the matter and he got out of there. I don't know if it was exactly 40 shots, but he finished the scene and he got out of it the second day, like Brian said, because Brian was going to shut it down. Probably Brian probably would have shut it down, you know, <laughs> called it done, figured out what he needed. And Brian probably would have come back later and restaged it and finished it himself. That was the thing about someone like Brian is Brian knew production, Brian knew directing, Brian knew the deal. And it's like, if you weren't going to do it, you know, that's fine because he could come and do it too. So, you know, if, if you weren't doing the damn job, he could just say, okay, you're finished. And then he could do it himself. So 
like I say, I have sort of a grudging respect for Brian because Brian gets stuff done and he gets it done on time. He's not always the most subtle tool. I mean, sometimes he comes on like a sledgehammer, but, you know, the guy has made money and he has succeeded and he has been involved in some really cool stuff. So, yeah, I I'm very respectful of him, but I keep one eye on him. How's that? Okay, well, hey. <laughs> so, Incredible, man. <laughs> One uh one thing with uh, Brian Usna, um, and this is just kind of like a theory. I don't know if I came up with this or not, but I almost feel like uh, society and um, Silent Night, Deadly Night Four mm-hmm. are almost like like Silent Night, Deadly Four is almost like a sequel to Society. Okay, all right. Like, yeah. That's like my theory. Like I feel like, <laughs> have you seen Silent Night Deadly Night Four? It's been a long damn time since I've seen Silent Night Deadly Night Four. Um, but there are a lot of similarities. Yeah. You know, I'm with like the body it, horror. Yeah, I think I'm confusing it with Silent. Which one is the one where Joe Petto makes the uh, the doll? It's basically the Pinocchio. <laughs> story. That's Silent Night Deadly Night Five. Yes. Yes, that's okay. five. I think I'm confusing four and five, but I know what you're saying. And again, I think you're onto something because those guys had the power. Nobody was there to tell Brian, you can't do an unofficial sequel to society and call it silent night, deadly night four. There was no one there to tell him No, it's, this is back in the era when troll two got made and had nothing to do with troll one, but, there was no one there in power to tell them no. These weren't these weren't billion dollar franchises like Marvel movies or Star Wars movies where there were 20 executives sitting around making corporate decisions. This this was like, you know, Brian and two other guys and then maybe some Japanese investors and that was it. Like there was nobody telling them, you know, the only thing that was telling them what to do or not to do is how many VHS they sold on the last film. So yeah, I don't think you're wrong there. I think that th- they could pretty much do what they wanted to. I mean, within reason. So Brian making Reanimator, Bride of Reanimator, kind of like a Frankenstein film. Yeah, absolutely he did. Or, you know, Brian taking the Return of the Dead, Return of the Living Dead films and going a whole different direction with them. Um, his decision to make. He He could make that decision and there was really no one to stop him. Um, I don't hold a lot of these movies to the same, I don't know. I hold, I don't hold them to the same standard that I do like bigger franchises. Like when you've got an established franchise like Marvel or DC, like when you're screwing around with Batman or Superman, that's some pretty heavy sort of public social, you know, you're, you're dealing with the impressions of millions of people around the world who have an impression of Batman or Superman. When you're talking about the reanimator films or you're talking about, you know, uh, the, the return of the living dead films, you're not talking about as huge an impact. So if you start screwing around with it, you're not going to hear millions of people scream and yell. So I think there was more freedom there. I'm sure some horror fans got, got offended, but but yeah, it's not like Brian Usner woke up one day and said, I'm going to make Batman a gay black man. He, he, he woke up one day and he went, oh, I've got this crazy idea of what to do with, you know, this obscure horror film. So 
yeah, I think if he'd been part of the corporate system that, you know, was putting together a huge, uh, a huge franchise, they probably would have said, okay, Brian, cool your jets. Don't get weird. <laughs> but because, you know, it wasn't on that level of notoriety, I think there was a lot of freedom to, to do good things and bad things. But, but again, generally speaking, I like what, the, what all those guys did. I like the directions they went in. I like the films they made. So. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's, uh, uh, I don't want to keep, you know, getting on like the using a bandwagon here, but oh, you know, go ahead. He, go ahead. <laughs> you know, he, he really did do a lot of interesting thing, you know, like society for an instance, like yeah. we hardly seen anything like that. Maybe since video drone, yeah. you know, like with the body horror type stuff, but he kind of just, he kind of just uh, pushed his his pedal to the gas, you know, <laughs> to the floor and just went with it. I used yeah. to get Christmas cards from Brian Usna and Brian Usna's Christmas cards, if you can believe this, and I've still got some of them. His Christmas cards were like society themed, if you can imagine. So what? it would be like Brian Usna. It was like these little cartoons and it would be like Brian Usna with a with a santa hat on smiling and saying you know brian usna wishes you a merry christmas and and invites you to shunt this christmas which i think shunting was the process where they'd meld their bodies together and stuff and, <laughs> yes <laughs> and so there'd be like this weird shunting mass of flesh in a cartoon form and like Brian Usna standing behind it with like a martini and a Santa cap wishing you a Merry Christmas. Yeah, these were <laughs> these were bizarre. And I think I have at least one or two of them. And one, one of them might have been like an invite to a screening. And the other one, I know I got at least one or two Christmas cards that were society themed. And yeah, they're... <laughs> They're extra oh special. That's I think it's amazing. Time, at the time when I got the cards, you know, I was part of the community and I was part of that crowd and we were working on films all the time. So it didn't really seem that odd. You look back at it now and you're like, yeah, that was a weird damn Christmas card to send out, dude. That, <laughs> that was some bizarre stuff. Um, but uh, yeah. So, but no, society, um, I personally didn't, I, I think society could have been better and certainly for the budget that he was working at he tried some incredibly ambitious makeup effects and some of it i think worked really well and some of it not as well and then you're crossing over there he worked so closely with uh, screaming mad george the makeup effects guy um and screaming mad george that's a whole other set of stories in itself because screaming mad george you know very talented but just screaming mad george calls himself professionally a surreal artist. And so mm -hmm. that tells you a lot about where he's coming from. Screaming Mad George could do a straight standard makeup effect, or he could, if you said Screaming Mad George, I need a giant alligator puppet for a horror film about a giant alligator, he could do that. But his forte was weirdness. So if you came to him with something like Society, that was Screaming Mad George's cup of tea. And so, he, but he was also kind of a master of low tech. Like he'd rather he'd rather put somebody inside something and have them puppeteer it or pull it with wires or, you know, move it with cables rather than get into all the really high tech 
makeup effects stuff that other companies like Stan Winston were doing. George liked to keep it simple. He liked to keep it hands-on. And sometimes that worked incredibly well. Other times it didn't. But I think society is more successful than it's unsuccessful. And I think society, I'm thinking about the film right now, and there's a couple of images in my head that they're just kind of burned in there and stuck in there and always will be. So, and like, that's like the things you can't unsee. Yeah, things you can't unsee, like somebody's face coming out of a butt or, <laughs> you know, a massive twisted flesh just wiggling around on the living room floor. Just, yeah, there's, there's just things in there that you couldn't unsee. So, you know, and I think maybe I've seen the film once. I've seen the film maybe once and have a very clear picture of it in my head. And that, again, that says a lot. That says a lot right there. Yeah, it uh, it's one of those films like, and I, what I think uh, it's kind of got a cult following now is like, no one can really explain that movie. I mean, like, we we don't know where these alien like are they aliens? Are they worms? Are you know like we yeah. just don't know what they are. Uh, and I think you know, that's what's so interesting yeah. about it. And I mean, it's it's as it's as simple and blatant as you know society feeding on the poor, but that's just too simple. It's like it's that simple, but it's also yeah, it's more complex than that, and it's more interesting than that. Um, uh, it, yeah, there... <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, there yeah. could be you know multiple meanings. You know, yes. like the movie could just you know could mean multiple meanings instead of just you know really digging in and seeing you know what are these things or you know and i don't know society to me doesn't feel like a lovecraft film per se but it definitely has that that element of unexplainable horror it definitely has that element of the body horror for sure i mean if you if you made a grouping I, i think it would fall on the outside edge of the of the lovecraft stuff um it's definitely kind of got a feel and a and a and an influence for sure. I think it's farther on the outside than, than all of Stuart Gordon's stuff, but it's still, I would put it on the outer edge of that chart of you know, Lovecraft and Lovecraft influenced stuff. Absolutely. Sure. Like, uh, you know, even kind of more like, uh, from beyond it was, what could probably be a comparison. Sure. You know, as sure. far as, uh, Stuart Gordon, you know, like his film goes. Right. And I would definitely say that it is quite possible. I can't say this with certainty, but it, it feels in some ways like from beyond could have influenced society, certainly in terms of the visuals and the makeup effects. I, I don't remember if Screaming Mad George was involved in from beyond or not, but from beyond has definitely got a lot of that twisted flesh and melded, distorted bodies. Um, and I'm assuming you're a Lovecraft fan. You probably know this, that from beyond is like it's a short story and i don't even know if it's five or ten pages long but the short story is essentially the opening of the film Mm -hmm. it kind of goes from there i think the short story is they turn the device on they open up the dimension and the guy gets his head bitten off and that's kind of it and then Mm -hmm. they just sort of looked at that and went well and then what happens And, and they showed you the rest of what happens so it's it's a Lovecraft adaptation in the loosest sense, but I definitely think it it taps into and sort of it, it definitely carries that Lovecraft vibe all the way throughout. I think it gets, I don't know, a, a lot of his stuff gets very, very specific, like 
the pineal gland growing out of the guy's head. In Lovecraft's world, I think that would be much more vague and much more loose. But, um, but yeah, From Beyond, not, not quite the love for From Beyond that I have for Reanimator, but I really enjoy From Beyond. One of the interesting things about From Beyond is, like, uh, I remember my girlfriend at the time. Uh, we saw Reanimator together. She enjoyed Reanimator as much as I did. Laughed her butt off, enjoyed it, really appreciated the film. We raced right out and saw From Beyond because it was by the guy who did Reanimator. She did not like From Beyond. I did. She did not. But there's definitely, in From Beyond, like Reanimator does horrible things and then it makes you laugh and then it sort of, it sort of punishes the bad people and rewards the good people to a certain degree and the people who need to die, die. The people who need to survive, survive for the most part. From Beyond, From Beyond just takes no prisoners. Everybody gets tortured. Everybody gets treated badly. They really ratcheted up the kind of the gross factor to an 11. And I remember it crossed over a threshold that she didn't like. And I, mm. I seem to remember we walked out of the theaters and she was she was not happy at all. Like that movie had left her in a bad state of mind. I enjoyed it. I laughed. I had fun. But she she absolutely hated it. So I think that From Beyond definitely tapped into something that wasn't quite as much fun. I don't think it was supposed to be. I mean, from Reanimator was supposed to be fun on some level. From Beyond, I don't think was supposed to. From Beyond, I think, you know, intended to walk up and punch you in the head. You know, Reanimator mm -hmm. was just going to kind of grab you by the ribs and give you a tickle. From Beyond was like going to walk up and just punch you right in the stomach. So, Right. Yeah, they, they wanted to take a step beyond, yeah. you know, the outer limits a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, loosely, it kind of... Uh, uh, reminds me of like uh, John Carpenter's The Thing mixed with Reanimator. Yeah, that's a good comparison. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, for people who haven't seen it like that, you know, it's probably a pretty spot on comparison. Uh, yeah. And it's got it, it's got you know uh, something I always appreciate in science fiction, which I'm gonna put Reanimator and From Beyond are. Reanimator is definitely horror, but Reanimator has an element of science fiction. It has an element of comedy. From Beyond, I would almost put more in the science fiction column and less in the horror column. And there's things in From Beyond that I really like from a science fiction standpoint, like the idea of this machine that could create vibrations that could make the other dimensions visible. And the idea that if you stood still within the field, the other creatures couldn't see you. But if you started to move, they were attracted to your motion. So concepts like that and ideas like like that, I really, really enjoyed. Um, so just some, some nice science fiction ideas. And the idea that the influence of the field would stimulate some people. Like if you already had that extrasensory perception the field would make your extrasensory perception that much more heightened. And then of course the pineal gland would come sprouting out of your forehead like it did with, with <laughs> Jeffrey Combs or like the Barbara Crampton character, the Barbara Crampton character. She had a little bit of a kind of a kinky edge to her that she was able to keep under control most of the time, but under the influence of the field, that sort of S and M dominatrix aspect of her was stimulated and enhanced. So mm -hmm. as, as like kinky and weird as all of that is, I still, I love the sort of the concepts behind it. So 
So for, for me, it was appealing just because I, I like ideas. I like things that make me think. And I remember that that film just made me think a lot about alternate dimensions, what is in the alternate dimension, what is looking, what can you see and what can you not see, what can they see of you. There's just some really nice, and that stuff to me is very Lovecraftian, that idea that there are two dimensions right on top of each other and sometimes you can see each other. That's a straight up Lovecraft idea that, really came through in in from beyond absolutely yeah you know what else strikes me about from beyond the colors you remember how oh, yes yeah pink and purple and glowing that film was i everything was so vibrant yeah it was especially it was really with the creatures yeah they turn on those switches they'd activate the machine and everything would just yeah would, vibrant is the word and um, I really enjoyed that. And that was that was kind of an interesting, risky choice, like doing makeup in those colors and then lighting, lighting it brightly, because kind of the rule of thumb is don't show a lot of light on your makeup. But boy, they were like putting the bright colored lights on that makeup. And I don't know that a lot of it looked. Well, it didn't. I was going to say it. I don't know that a lot of it looked real, but it looked otherworldly. That's for sure. A lot of it just looked strange and weird and unlike anything I'd seen before. So. You know, it, it, it worked in that respect. I don't know that I necessarily believe some of it, but it was very striking to look at. Really, really interesting stuff. Right. Yeah, it's very entertaining. And I don't know if there was a big budget difference between Reanimator or I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know if there's a big budget difference between From Beyond and Society. I'm not real privy to those figures. But to me, I thought From Beyond was a more effectively produced film and i thought the makeup effects while similar to society i thought the makeup effects in from beyond were much more successful i mean society kind of was a one trick thing where they sort of did one sort of style from beyond just had so many different things i mean that was a huge makeup effects show by mm -hmm. today's standards we think of like a jurassic park film as being a big makeup effects film because there's all these animatronic dinosaurs. But back in the day, From Beyond is what you would call a huge makeup effects film. I mean, there was just there was something like in every scene in that film. And I'm betting, you know, a third or half of the budget just went into the the makeup effects and stuff because there, there was a lot of stuff going on in that film. Lots and lots of stuff. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, you know, I, I could only imagine most of that budget went to special effects. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, wow. Um, well, we can uh, venture off to another uh, Stuart Gordon film. I wanted uh, to mention Dolls. Dolls. And, okay. And uh, and I was I was thinking about Dolls, and I'm like, okay, you know, I've seen it a few times. It's a really good killer doll movie. And I'm looking. This movie came out before Puppet Master, so I'm oh, thinking. Sure. Yeah. You know, was this a huge influence on uh, Charlie Band doing Puppet Master? Well, and I'll bet you it was because I think one of the co-producers on Dolls was Charlie Band. So, you know, I, I think you're pretty safe to say that <laughs> Charlie was probably <laughs> produced or uh, Charlie was definitely probably influenced by by that. Um, and, you know, I, I, I definitely would. You know, they're definitely different things. And if I was if I was Brian Usen and student Stuart Gordon, I wouldn't have been offended by the Puppet Master films or feel like I was getting ripped off. But no, I definitely think there was an inspiration or an influence or, you know, the classic sort of, you know, 
he wanted to do it one way and they wanted to do another. So they did it their way. And then he went off and did his own thing. Like I said, I have no, I have no proof of that, but I wouldn't be a bit surprised if Charlie band came off of dolls and went, yeah, I kind of liked that, but I really would like to do it like this. And so that's how he went and did it. Um, right. Yeah. And I, I don't think dolls was as big or as influential. I definitely remember dolls more on VHS and on cable. That's one that I don't remember as much in the theaters. I think it got theatrical release, but I don't remember that one as much until until later on. I, I was disappointed that because uh, we got some of the same cast back. We got like Stuart Gordon's wife, like uh, Carolyn Purdy Gordon. We got her back. Um, but I, I really miss Barbara Crampton. I really miss uh, Jeffrey Combs. Um, I, I love those guys when they show up in in his movies. But um but still mm-hmm. a good cast, a good cast. Yeah, that one uh that one kind of surprised me a little bit. I uh I mean it's been several years since I've watched it, but uh I got it on VHS and just popped it in one night and I was like, damn, this is actually yeah. you know a, pr- a pretty solid killer doll movie. And and I'm trying to think who did the visual effects on that and I'm wondering then if there was I'd have to go back and look at the credits. I don't I don't remember who did the visual effects. And I'm wondering if that was any of uh, Charlie Band's people. Like, because they did so much stop motion and puppet work on the Puppet Master films. I'm wondering if those were the same guys who did the stuff for dolls. I, I Like I said, I'd have to go back and do some research on that. But yeah, I'm wondering if there's a connection there or a link there. I'm actually, while I'm talking to you, I'm... I'm looking at IMDb and I'm wondering if there's like visual effects credits in there. Um, but certainly that's not as, as critical. Um, special effects, David Allen. Okay. David Allen was one of the guys who went on and did stuff for puppet masters. So yeah, I think you put your finger right on that. I think that dolls definitely was sort of the springboard for the puppet master series. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting for sure. Yeah. And then uh you know, like at that time like Empire Pictures, they really put on some really good movies for yeah. for lower budget yeah, horror movies. And I, you look at uh, you know, you look at Full Moon now, it's like yeah. You know, I hate to say it, but it's just it's too damn cheesy. Like I love the old Full Moon and Empire Pictures stuff. Yeah. They they definitely you could see you could see the growth and the collapse. Uh, I mean, Charlie Band and then I, I remember his father before him. Uh, I think it was Albert Band. You know, the, the whole sort of band family thing started back in the 70s. Like I can remember stuff like uh, uh, Laser Blast. Yeah. Yep. So, so Laser Blast was one of their first early films. And then they emerged as empire pictures and through the eighties, it's like empire pictures was doing some really cool stuff. And then, you know, they, they overextended themselves and then empire kind of collapsed. And then out of the, out of the ashes of empire came full moon and initially full moon. It's like, they were trying to get some of that glory back. And, and I remember some of their early films I really enjoyed, but yeah, I'm with you that, as they kind of and didn't they even develop like a children's division? Uh, yeah. Um, oh so, my so gosh, it's like full beam, I think, yeah, or something so, like that. So imagine that that 
Full Moon and Charlie Band are trying to spin off a children's division. I mean, that's just, that's a nightmare in and of well, itself right well, there. Well, hey, hey, uh, come to think, I think uh, maybe that kind of stemmed off of uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids when uh, Richard Band and didn't like Stuart Gordon work on Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? He he did. What happened was um, Brian Usna and and uh, Stuart Gordon had this idea that was essentially it was essentially Honey I Shrunk the Kids, but it was called the Teeny Weenies. <laughs> and the Teeny Weenies was kind of a more family friendly idea. But can you can only imagine what family friendly through the lens of Brian Usna and Stuart Gordon would have been? I'm sure it would have been family friendly, but it probably would have been pretty twisted. <laughs> and probably would have had I, I I can't say that with certainty. I can just only because what happened was Usna pitched the story to Disney and Gordon was on board as a director. And you know, Disney got a hold of it and Disney looked at it and developed it. And it's somewhere, some point along the line, whether Stuart Gordon was asked to step down or Stuart Gordon was paid to step down. Basically, Stuart Gordon stepped aside and it became a big Disney film. And Joe Johnston, who has become such a successful director, Joe Johnston stepped in and directed it. And mm. so you so clearly something went on there. And then I think Stuart Gordon and Yuzna ended up being producers on the film. And I think they got story credit. But yeah, it basically whatever was Stuart Gordon's and, and Brian Yuzna's version of Teeny Weenies pretty much got set aside and i think they got written the big paycheck and then disney went on and made honey i shrunk the kids so um, interesting yeah yeah i th i think it's interesting to look at if you look at the disney films it's a really kind of outside the disney world sort of an adventure film it definitely you can kind of see the seeds of because the disney universe is usually so no, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of Disney films I like, and there's a lot of modern Disney films I like. But Disney kind of has a formula, and Disney sort of has a way they go about things. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is not one of them. Honey, I Shrunk the Kids is so sort of counter to Disney and so sort of outside their sphere of influence. You can you can very much tell that somebody else brought that to them. They Disneyized it, and they homogenized it, and they cleaned it up for for families. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's a, a very outside the box film for Disney. So I, th I think we have Gordon and Usna to thank for the influence on the film. But yeah, I, I thoroughly believe that they were given a big paycheck and said, we want you to walk away from this. How much is it going to cost us? And they probably named a number and Disney went, OK, <laughs> you, <laughs> you want a quarter of a million dollars to walk away from this? OK, here you go. Here's, here's your check. Walk away now. Um, that's that's not a bad payday. No, and and it happens. It happens. I've been involved in projects before in Los Angeles where I've I've talked to my friends and you know interest. In, it's never gone anywhere, but interest in the project heats up. People get involved. People start talking about it, and I've pulled friends aside on several occasions and said, "Okay, guys, what about the pay you to walk away scenario?" and that kind of stops them in their tracks. And I'm like, yeah, what happens if they want the project, but they don't want you? What do you do? What's the number? Like, is there a number that will make you walk away and make you feel good about it? And it's interesting because some people I've, I've said, this is a great idea. You're in a great position. What happens if they don't want you? And they don't have anything to say. They're just dumbfounded. 
I've talked to other people though, where I've said, dude, what are you going to do if they offer to buy your film outright? And then they don't do anything with your film and they use your concept and remake your movie. And the guy has said, you know, if they pay me X amount of dollars, they can do whatever the hell they want with it. I'm like, there you go. So it's, yeah, uh, it's, it, it's always interesting. You, you'll find out very quickly in Hollywood what your price is. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know what you're worth until you go to Hollywood and somebody starts offering you money. So, oh, anyway. man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Um, yeah, can you imagine what a, uh, a Stuart Gordon Honey, I Shrunk the Kids would have looked like? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I think it would have been PG rated. I think it would have been more or less a family film. I just bet you there would have been more weirdness, more scary, more insects, more danger. I think it would have yeah. been. There probably wouldn't have been any great family crisis. There wouldn't have been any sort of, you know, kids and father at odds with each other or any sort of family reconciliation. It probably just would have been a straight up action adventure film. So it would it'd be really interesting to see that version. Or read the script. I, I should dig around and see if I can find the script out there. See what the original Teeny Weenies was all about. Yeah, so, yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. Um, I will tell you this. Brian Usna, he was not shy about saying that Honey, I Shrunk the Kids was basically... I mean, he wasn't discrediting Stuart Gordon, but he would say, Oh, I was the original creator of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. He would use that. He was not shy about using that as sort of a break the ice or a calling card. Like, you may not know who I am or you may not know how important I am, but I was the original creator of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. So if you stood around long enough at a party, you would hear Brian say that because, you know, that's if I was the original creator of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, I'd probably say it fairly often, too. So but yeah, that was definitely one of Brian Usna's trump cards is. Oh, yeah? Well, I made Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, so there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah, Stuart Gordon was definitely, uh, you know, I, I think he really made an imprint on the horror genre. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was... Uh, you know, whether people recognize it or not, he was a big part of the 80s and uh, maybe maybe not so much in the 90s. But, uh, you know, no, he was definitely, I think, on the down. He was definitely on to say downhill slide or I don't I don't know. Um, things fall in and out of favor. Films fall in and out of favor. I think as we were moving into the 90s, we were getting so much of the CGI visual effects stuff and. I tell people this all the time, like you look back at some of the, the famous movies in history, some of the big successes like like Jaws. Jaws was not a huge film. I mean, it was a huge success, but it was not a ridiculously expensive film. And it's kind of a small film. It's mostly three guys on a boat fighting a shark. It's not this massive epic. And then you move forward Spielberg's other big film, uh, Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park in 1993, not a massive film. I mean, hugely successful, but most of the film is, you know, a couple of people running around in the park being stalked by dinosaurs. And there's a couple of signature effects sequences, but that was like a $50 million film. That was a fairly small film. It, it's famous for the CGI dinosaurs and sort of that innovation in CGI. But again, not a massive film. 
then you look as the films went on in the last couple of Jurassic World films, they're these gigantic $200 million epics with so many things happening and so many effect shots and such massive sequences. So, you know, a film like uh, From Beyond or, you know, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids played incredibly well in the late 90s. You start getting into the early 90s, I'm sorry, the late 80s. You get into the early 90s, something like Fortress. I love Fortress. Fortress is great. I worked on Fortress. But you're starting to get into the CGI epics. You're starting to get into the Jurassic Parks. And then as you move deeper into the 90s and you're getting into like Michael Bay films and Armageddon and, you know, new Star Wars movies, it's just it's so difficult for these tiny little genre films to compete. And again, studios don't have any interest. It's like they'd rather put all their eggs in a basket and make a billion dollars than put an egg in 12 different baskets and try and make money. Back in the 80s, studios were willing to say, oh, I'll give you five million, I'll give you three, and I'll give you two, and maybe one of you will make a hit. Studios were great about that. They spread the wealth around. Now studios' entire focus is trying to make a couple of blockbusters a year. And so you know, these, these small genre filmmakers, they just kind of got squeezed out of stuff. And yeah, I think you, as you definitely move into the 90s, Stuart Gordon and a lot of those guys, I think, just had fewer and fewer opportunities to do good stuff. They really did. And Stuart Gordon, I think he stumbled once or twice. Like, I like robot jocks. I appreciate robot jocks. I don't think robot jocks is that great. I, th- I think robot jocks is kind of stiff and kind of it's kind of simplistic and overly idealistic but it's got some great effects like if it was it, made like late 70s early 80s yes it would you know that would have yes. been the perfect time frame for that movie yeah and you know you say that it feels exactly like a film that got made in the late 70s like i could see robot jocks on a double bill with like damnation alley or something like <laughs> that perfectly absolutely makes sense that makes total sense And then by the time you get to something like Pit and the Pendulum, which I personally loved Pit and the Pendulum, I thought, and in some ways, that's a big film for him. I think that film is epic. It's a period film. It's got some great stuff in it. But by that time, I think that stuff was just kind of, you know, that's when they were starting to sweep it under the rug. It was starting to get pushed by the wayside. I think films like Pit and the Pendulum, they were hoping those things would go to the theaters. And I just don't think they were getting the kind of play. In the, I'm not even sure if Pit and the Pendulum went into the box office or went into the theaters or not. I, I think Pit and the Pendulum might have gone straight to, to VHS. And, and it's a shame because I thought it was a really good film. Like, again, kind of kind of outside his genre a little bit. I mean, it was kind of a historical horror film, but, but I thought he did a really good job on it. I thought, I thought he did surprisingly well with something that was a little more straightforward um, and, but it, it still had those horror and those supernatural elements to it. But, um, but yeah, it was, you know, more like the macabre. Yeah. You know, like, you know, yeah. it's an Edgar Allan Poe story. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and then he further went into, uh, Oh, the, you know, masters of horror series. He did, uh, yes. Yeah. What was, was it the black cat? I think <sighs> with, uh, with Jeffrey Combs. Yes. It was dreams in the witch house and it was the black cat. You're right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. So he, fair to say, he was probably a big fan of H.P. Lovecraft and Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah. Um. <laughs> you 
This is the end of part one of two of the Remembering Stuart Gordon episode with Wyatt Weed. Um, before we get into the next episode, I just wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Wake Brewing, is a brewing company in Rock Island, Illinois. I know a lot of businesses are closing right now, but they do offer beer to go sat on Saturdays from noon to three. You have to put a pre-order in using PayPal. But uh, yeah, if you still want to get some craft beer from Wake Brewing, they're still offering to sell you some beers to take home. Um, Yeah, if you haven't tried Wake Brewing beer, I suggest checking them out. They have some great delicious beer that they make right there at the brewery. And yeah, it's phenomenal. So go check them out on their website at wakebrewing.com. And uh, they're on Instagram and Facebook as well. If you have any questions, feel free to send them a message and they will get back to you. And uh, hopefully they should answer any questions you may have. Um, yeah, again, Wake Brewing in Rock Island, Illinois at wakebrewing.com. Enjoy the next episode, guys. listening to the Rude Horror Podcast. If you like this content and would like to hear future episodes, please follow or subscribe if you dare. <laughs>